Welcome to The Spirit Explodes with Roger Kirby. This is study 15 in the Acts of the Apostles, drawn from Acts chapter 15 verse 36 through to chapter 16 verse 40, all about excitements at Philippi. This is the beginning of what is usually labelled the second missionary journey. We're going to read chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia, and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. We do not know why John Mark had left the little group of missionaries to return to Jerusalem. Of course, it turned out that the most important thing he would ever do, writing his gospel, was still some distance in the future. It is also clear that Paul forgave him enough to have him working with him later on, and then to be anxious to be visited by him when he was in prison. Question 1. What about a bit of guesswork? What reasons might Mark have had for going back to Jerusalem that he thought were good reasons and Paul did not? I think these must almost certainly have been family reasons. Perhaps he had heard someone was dying, or perhaps he had left a pregnant wife behind and wanted to be nearby as she reached the time to give birth. Family events like these are still difficult for people working overseas with the gospel. Now we read chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Question 2. Why did Paul circumcise Timothy just after it had been agreed that non-Jewish Christians did not need to be circumcised? With mixed-race parents, Timothy's status must have been ambiguous. Was he a Jew or not? If he was going to work amongst them, it would be best if the ambiguity was removed. In doing this, Paul was following his usual policy of not letting any practical thing stand in the way of people accepting the good news of Jesus. 
We read verses 6 to 12. Paul and his companions travelled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. This is an interesting passage. As I read it, Paul had a policy of deciding what to do next on the basis of common sense, only following spiritual guidance when he was forced to do so. Question 3. Would you agree that this is a good way of proceeding? There is a distinct possibility of disagreement here. I guess it depends on our personality types and our faith and church background how we approach the question of what we should do next. My argument is that the Lord has given us brains and he means us to use them. I think relying on feeling we have a small voice telling us what to do after prayer is susceptible to too much personal desire creeping in. You may disagree. Think about it. We do not know who the man of Macedonia was. The most common guesses are Luke himself or Alexander the Great. Whoever it was, Paul was quite sure this was the word of the Lord to him and immediately obeyed. It was a comparatively short voyage from the port of Troas on the shore of modern Turkey to Neapolis in modern Greece. But for Paul and his companions, this was not a journey from one country to another, but just a slight extension of their travels within the Roman Empire. They then go on to the important Roman settlement of Philippi. We read verses 13 to 15. On the Sabbath... We went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Lydia must have been an important woman, perhaps a widow, trading in the cloth that was only worn by the imperial family. Question 4. What does the fact that she was baptized mean? 
the Holy Spirit must have come upon her. The fact that her household, presumably family, servants and slaves, were all baptized is recognition that their culture was very different from the strictly individualistic culture of modern Western society. Theirs was a pluralistic culture, where her dependents would unquestionably accept her decision as being theirs as well, and would expect to receive the Holy Spirit as she did. Their action was no less meaningful, even if we find it a bit incomprehensible if we are Westerners. Once again, Luke draws attention to the positive role a woman played in the early church. And now we're going to read verses 16 to 40. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ I command you to come out of her. At that moment the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl, realizing their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs and unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been sent severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains became loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. 
The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the orders, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They have beaten us publicly without a trial, even though we were Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want you to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escort them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Luke is almost teasing his readers when he has the jailer cry out, What must I do to be saved? Biblically, that sounds more like a theological question than the intensely practical one that it is here. As we noticed in the story of Peter's escape from prison, jailers who lost their charges were liable to the death penalty themselves. Paul needs no second invitation. He immediately tells the jailer about Jesus in sufficient detail to convince him of the truth of what they said. Question 5. What is the sequence of actions that lead to the joy of the jailer? An act of physical rescue, instruction, baptism and caring fellowship we may assume that the gift of the Holy Spirit fitted in there somewhere. Luke is instructing us in the story he tells. A much harder question to answer is this, question 6. Why did Paul and Silas not say they were Roman citizens before they were beaten and avoid a very painful experience? It may have been for the simple reason that they could not make themselves heard in the hubbub of the crowd, but it may perhaps have been for the sake of the brand new little church. They did not want it to be dependent on the authorities for its continuation. After the beating, they should not have received, the local believers were in a position of superior honour in relation to the authorities and not beneath them. They could spend time encouraging the believers before acceding to the authorities' request and leaving the city. All of which is a good illustration of how to obey the instruction of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 verse 16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Question 7. What role has sin played in the conversions we have been thinking about in this chapter? What are the motives of these converts? What should we learn from those answers? Sin has not appeared as a factor in any of the conversions recorded here. The converts seem to have reacted to the truth about Jesus as Paul explained it. 
We need sometimes, or perhaps often, to be positive in our presentation of the gospel. It is not always right to say, you are a sinner, you must be saved. And that's the end of this study. Thanks for listening. Come back to Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, where every day there is something added to help you in your life as a Christian disciple. Thank you.